Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Welcome to Season. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. If you're a fan of cookbooks, like we are, and you pour over articles and recipes on the New York Times cooking site or Food 52, like we do, you'll appreciate getting to know our next guest, Amanda Hesser. Ahead this hour on Seasoned, we talk with Amanda about her amazing culinary journey, all of it non-traditional and on her own terms. In the mid-2000s, Amanda gave herself the monumental task of compiling the recipes of record, as they were called, from the 150-year history of food writing in the New York Times. That hefty collection, The Essential New York Times Cookbook, was originally published in 2010. In 2021, that seminal cookbook was, as she said, lovingly revised. Amanda will share with us the thinking behind the update, which reflects how we cook today and the many diverse cooks who are moving American food culture forward. But first, before we jump into her latest work, we wanted to learn the backstory of how Amanda, one of the most trusted home cooks in America and the founder of Food 52, got her start in the food world. We asked Amanda to describe those early formative years, just after college, when she cooked her way through Europe and connected with the curmudgeonly character that inspired her first book and launched a food writing career. Amanda, thank you so much for joining us. Before we talk about anything, I know you're a huge fan of the New York Times Spelling Bee. How many words did you get this morning? Because I stunk up the joint. Well, actually, so I love the spelling bee, but my husband is the one who plays. So I'm kind of a supporting, I play a supporting role. I kind of walk by as I'm getting my coffee and oh, I see. try to make some, some suggestions, usually words that he's already tried. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he's he's been queen bee twice this week. Queen so bee? I know. I need your husband's <laughs> contact info because I meet my neuro mortality every time I do that spelling bee. So I'm going to have to call your husband for moral support. Thank you. Thank you so much for clarifying that for me because I needed to get to the bottom of it. Marisol, I feel like we have so many smart people on this program. Like you guys are talking about the, the spelling bee. As a chef, there's nothing I want less than to try to spell things. No. Well, well, <laughs> it's a whole new world. Amanda, I wonder if we could just really just broadly, you've accomplished so much in your life and you have so much more that I'm sure you're going to accomplish. But how did you start your culinary journey? Was it your first desire to get into the food world when you were growing up or did it find you? (laughs) We found each other. And uh, (laughs) I think, you know, I grew up, I think like, you know, most kids, like you don't kind of appreciate what you have until you're kind of like away from it. And what I realized when I went off to college was like, wow, my family really like cared a lot about food. Everyone knows how to cook. It's an important part of our lives and something we prioritize and that it wasn't that typical. And so I think that, you know, when I went to college and was sort of away from it, I, I started to realize that actually I had a personal interest in it and I happened to go to college outside of Boston. So it's the first time I was exposed to a big city. Some might call Boston a small city now, but it certainly felt like a huge city to me coming from the mountains of Pennsylvania. So it gave me a chance to, being there gave me a chance to explore, you know, it was really like early days of what we sort of think of as our, you know, restaurant culture now, like really start taking off, you know, the the kind of like post 
fussy French food restaurant culture. And so I just kind of dove right in and I was always kind of like trying to find new bakeries and new places to check out in in Boston. And then, you know, eventually I actually started working. Uh, I worked at a restaurant in Boston. I worked at a, at a bread bakery. I delivered bread. I, um, I took a food history course at Radcliffe, which was like a night course that was available to, you know, kind of anyone who would sign up. And I was very lucky because it was taught by this amazing scholar named Barbara Wheaton, who uh, is one of, the, one of the leading like food history scholars. And in her class, were two of my classmates were food writers: Corby Cummer uh, from the Atlantic and Cheryl Julian, who was was and still is the food editor at the Boston Globe. And so I, I think I, you know, I was very lucky because I got exposed to both people who for whom this was a profession, which I didn't, when I went to college, I didn't know that you could become a food writer. I mean, I knew there were cookbooks and I knew there were food magazines, but it wasn't really like cognizant of it as a career. And I had worked in restaurants as a, as a waiter, as a, like a server and a bartender, but I, you know, hadn't been on the kind of other side. And so I just kind of, you know, I wandered a bit. You could, you could say I was sort of just kind of exploring, <laughs> right? but I found myself really drawn to it. And after college, well, actually, while I was in college, I decided that rather than kind of doing what my classmates were doing, which was like applying to big corporations, I came up with this sort of scholarship program, which I say in air quotes, because I, I literally made it up this essential program to go work at a bunch of different restaurants and bakeries in Europe and go to cooking school there. And then I pitched it to a women's culinary group called the Dom de Scoffier in Boston and they were incredibly receptive and gave me the money that I, I asked for to essentially support me in this, this European journey that I had literally kind of made up. Wow. (laughs) You had literally cooked up yourself. You were like, this doesn't exist. Yeah. So I'm going to make it by the way, kudos to your professor who produced three (laughs) famous food writers now out of that one class. So I wonder where she is now, wherever she is. I'm sure she's like, yeah, I helped do that. (laughs) <laughs> it was great because they also were the ones who encouraged me to go to go to Europe and just to kind of actually she is the one who said I, I told her I wanted to do this thing in Europe and as I was explaining to her she said can I just stop you she was like why are you asking me for permission it sounds like you know what you want to do so why don't you just do it and it was the most important and I would say influential career advice I've ever been given and really has guided me ever since, because once she said that this person who I had revered as like, you know, who had, in my view, gone out to all the right schools and, you know, was like teaching at Radcliffe and like, you know, had sort of followed all the right paths in her own career, you know, made me realize that actually your career is your own to shape. So it just, I kind of, from then on, sort of stopped asking for permission. Good for you. Amanda, so you, you go over to Europe to study and cook. How long were you there for? And talk about that program you're in. Well, <laughs> again, it was a made up program. So it was um, essentially I had done a bunch of networking and found restaurants and bakeries that were, you know, had good reputations that would let me work there for free for a few months. And it wasn't staging. I was staging. Exactly. I was, it's not like it, what I was doing was unheard of. But the way I kind of funded it and organized it was what was a little maybe a little different. But I started in Germany in a bread bakery in um, Weingarten, which is in the Black Forest. 
I worked there for a couple of months and then I went to Switzerland and I worked in this little town called Villisau, where I also worked in actually like a bread bakery and pastry shop. And then I worked in Italy in a restaurant. I went to France and worked in, in Paris to work to in a bakery. And then I eventually, I eventually went to La Varenne, which was a cooking school that was, you know, a rival of Le, Le Cordon Bleu. And when I went there, it was had, they had moved out to Burgundy to this old chateau where the family who owned the school lived. It was owned by Anne Willen, who I don't know if you guys know her, but she is a an amazing uh, you know entrepreneur. She started this cooking school. She wrote thirty plus cookbooks over her career. You know she's she was a great friend of Julia Child's, and she's not as well known as someone like Julia Child, but she has had a big influence on a lot of um, chefs and food writers in the U.S. over the decades. And anyway, so I worked for her as her essentially as her assistant, and so I helped her on editorial projects and I cooked dinner and lunches for her and her family. And that was essentially my cooking school education, which was definitely like trial by fire and great and kind of very up my alley, but it also exposed me to food writing and cookbook writing for the first time. And while I was living with her and her family, and, you know, there were other people who were staging and working at the cooking school, which was on the one side of the chateau. One of my uh, responsibilities was cooking meals. And I had to use vegetables and fruits from the garden as much as possible. And there was this two acre walled garden on the property that had been there for like 400 years. It was tended to by this older man named Monsieur Melbert, who lived on the property. He lived in the old pigeon um, house, he and his wife and their little dog Poose, which means flea. And he was this kind of cranky guy. And he really didn't like all the like young Americans who were nosing around in his garden. But I realized like, if I, if I wanted to kind of get what I want needed from the garden, I needed to be like, make friends with him. But I also very quickly realized like, oh my gosh, this guy, he lives this way of life that I think we had all, I think Americans had kind of, created this sort of fantasy of like how French people live at the time, you know, like that he, and he, he literally like planted according to the phases of the moon and, you know, he rolled his own cigarettes and he just lived very simply, but also seemingly, you know, very happily. And, and I thought, well, this is like, this is the France that I wanted to get to know when I came to France. And so getting to know him is like a real opportunity, not only to understand the culture, but also to better understand what I was cooking with because he was growing all these vegetables and fruits. And, and I think this is sort of when I started making the connections between my childhood and my, and my actual interest. Cause you know, like my grandparents always had a garden that we, we ate vegetables from the garden and we didn't go to the grocery store to buy them when we were visiting them. And we caught crabs in the Chesapeake Bay and cooked them. And we caught fish in the Chesapeake Bay and cooked them. And like you know, these, these things that were very much part of my upbringing but I didn't fully appreciate at the time. I thought, well, this is like my chance to really learn how this all comes together. And so the writer in me started to emerge because I think I started to see that not only there's this great opportunity to learn as a cook and as a cultural observer, but I also felt like I had found my first subject. And Mm -hmm. Mr. Malbert is the subject of my first book, which is called The Cook and the Gardener. And it follows, it's a cookbook, but it's a cookbook with a strong narrative backbone that kind of follows my year following him around at the garden uh, and how I got to know him and how I got to kind of understand forcing myself to only cook what was in season and like what that looked like. And, you know, I'll tell you in (laughs) January, that's a lot of weeks um, (laughs) in France and Burgundy. Um, 
you know, you're, you have to be more creative. And then like, if there's like all this abundance in the summer that you have to learn how to deal with ripe berries and currants, and you don't want them to just rot on the vine you want to, or on, you know, on the bush. So you want, you need to find creative ways to preserve them. And so it was like this really eye-opening experience in my life, the years that I was in Europe. And I think, you know, really kind of formative for me in my career. So wait, Amanda, are you saying that leeks are delicious until day 20? And then you're like, I've had enough leeks in my life. <laughs> Pretty much. Um, I love know, it. Yeah. Then you're like, when I sort of mix in some uh, potatoes or beets or something. Um, right. Yeah. Cut it with something. Amanda, it's amazing to listen to you. You have this memory recall. I mean, you're talking about your professor. You're talking about this gardener as though you just saw them yesterday. And to me, it feels very much like you married these passions that maybe you didn't know at the time, which was this passion for writing and this passion for food. And I wonder how those two things figure into that evolution from working in these bakeries over in Europe and these restaurants, and then ending up at the New York Times. Well, (laughs) the food part kind of makes more sense when I look back at my upbringing because of, you know, the influences that I've mentioned. But the writing part doesn't at all. Like no one in my family is a writer. Well, I mean, now they are like one of my sisters is an artist, but I did not grow up in in a family that like celebrated art, you know, or reading. I mean, there were like basically no books in our house, but I do actually think that there's a a creative thread in my family, but we, we were very like, you know, middle-class very much a blue collar mentality of like, you get a job that's, that's going to like pay the bills, be stable and provide for your family. And, the idea of like becoming a writer, I would have been like laughed at, at the dinner table, you know, I think. And so it just kind of happened organically over time. And I think that it's no surprise to me that I ended up having a, like a staff job somewhere, because of course that is practical. Right. (laughs) In fact, when I got hired, when I got hired at the New York times, I remember calling my mom and, and she was so, she was very pleased, but she was said, Oh, finally you have a real job. I, I still haven't gotten that yet, Amanda. I still haven't gotten that yet. I'm working on well, good it. Good for you. Good for you. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, of course, you know, now I, I see things differently. But um, and so, you know, my, my parents had taken a big risk and bought this car business and kind of built that essentially kind of from the ground up. And so I grew up in an environment of definitely very practical approaches to career, but also, you know, some risk taking and entrepreneurial spirit. So I think like where I landed is clearly very influenced, you know, where I grew up, but I certainly did not expect to be like have writer on my resume. Um, We know when I went to Europe, I wasn't thinking necessarily that I would become a writer. I was intrigued, but I was also thinking it was very possible that I might become a bread baker or decide to like, you know, start a restaurant or something like that someday. So, you know, working with my hand was definitely something that feels like in line with what was valued in my upbringing. So, you know, so I started writing this book when I was in in France, I was like, because I was young and I guess I had a lot of, you know, youthful hubris. I was like, oh, well, Mr. Malbert is so interesting. I guess I'll write a book about him. And having had no writing experience at that point, there's um, an organization called the IACP, the International Association of Culinary Professionals. They used to put out this um, really thick directory, <laughs> literally paper, like printed directory that would get shipped to any member. And in the back, you could like look up like chefs and writers and agents, cookbook agents. So I, that's literally what I did. I looked up cookbook agents. I sent my proposal to all the cookbook agents in that directory. And I heard back from two. One was to say like, my stack of proposals is so high, like never going to get to yours essentially. And the other was Joe Coover, who is an agent in Massachusetts who 
was like, I love your proposal and would love to hear more about your plan. And then we sold the book to Norton, WW Norton. And so I had, when I came home from Europe, which I think was 90, 96, maybe I had a book deal, which was that's crazy. Like, in some ways kind of hilarious to me that I like, I was like, okay, I guess I'm a writer. <laughs> And so I wrote, I went moved back into my mom's house in Pennsylvania where I grew up and wrote the book. And then the New York Times called, which I thought was a prank call, or it was a message on the on an answering machine, um, just to date myself. Uh, but I thought it was kind of a prank call because I was like, because I didn't know anybody at the New York Times. I had pitched story ideas to the Times, but no one had ever responded. And I was very suspicious, I was skeptical. But of course I was going to call back. And it turned out it was an editor of the New York Times. And he, you know, explained to me that they were redesigning the sections, like the style sections and lifestyle sections of the New York Times, and they were hiring. And uh, the person who had recommended me was Nancy J Jenkins, who was a cookbook author and a former New York Times writer, who, funnily enough, was teaching at Radcliffe in the next room back when I was taking my class. I didn't think I'd get the job. So I like I, I did the interview before I left, but then I moved to L.A. because I just thought, well, I'm never going to get this job. And then two months later, after a number of interviews, I did get hired. Well, I, I just have to ask before we move forward, because I'm dying to know. The gardener that rolled his own cigarettes and, and you know, was very finicky about his garden, after he wrote this book essentially about him, did yeah. he react? Did he think it was great? Or was he like, ah? Whatever. Well, you know, it's, I didn't get to see him for a couple of years because I didn't get back to France. You know, I knew he, so I had sent him the book. I knew he had it. I knew he was happy with it. I have lost touch with him and I don't, my guess is that he's no longer alive because he was quite old at the time. And that was a long time ago, but he was very pleased. I think he was very, a little mystified yeah. and also pleased that somebody had paid attention to the, his work and his life. Mm -hmm. That's great. Yeah. He was very sweet. He was very sweet under, underneath his like crusty exterior. <laughs> right. He was a lovable curmudgeon. Yes. I have a couple of those in my life. Yeah. 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 They, yeah. 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 You're listening to our conversation with the very accomplished food media entrepreneur, Amanda Hesser. She's been forging her own way in the food world for more than 20 years. Later in the hour, Amanda highlights some favorites from the New York Times recipe archive and reveals the most popular recipe of all time. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. Coming up after the break, we talk with Amanda about the massive effort behind curating the essential New York Times cookbook in 2010 and how she recently revised it to reflect the evolution of American food and food culture. There had been so much change at the Times and like their whole way of seeing their food coverage had evolved in this really bountiful, interesting way. This is Seasoned on Connecticut Public Radio. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Seasoned. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Blum. We're spending the hour this week with Amanda Hesser. She's the founder and CEO of Food 52. But before that, she was a reporter and the food editor at the New York Times, where she had a great idea for a cookbook. The Essential New York Times Cookbook was originally published in 2010. It took Amanda years to cook her way through thousands of recipes in the paper's archives. Let's pick up our conversation with Amanda about the origins of the original cookbook and its timely revision. 
I just was always kind of looking for like, what's next and what's new and what can we change and what can we improve? And, you know, at an institution like the Times, which actually has transformed itself amazingly over the past two decades, but change at that time, like it did not come fast. And so, you know, while I was there, I found people who would let me try new things. The the, the editor at the Times Magazine hired me to, to be the food editor and that was totally great. And while I, while I was doing that, I had lunch with a, an editor who was like kind of overseeing books and, you know, she was like, you know, wondering if I had any book ideas and, and kind of off the cuff, I just you know noted that it surprised me that the last time the Times had done a really big comprehensive book was, you know, that really kind of was <clears throat> celebrated was the original New York Times cookbook by Craig Claiborne in the sixties. That book was, is an amazing gem, but it felt to me like the times have been covering food so much since then. And so much had changed in our culture with food that like, it seemed like there was a good moment to do a new kind of like more of a retrospective as opposed to Craig Claiborne's cookbook was very much based on his work and work of his colleagues around the time of the publishing of his cookbook. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to write this book. It's going to basically kind of look at food in the New York Times from the 1960s to today. And then I, I remember going to the research department and saying, you know, hey, I'd love to like read some of the food coverage that predated Craig Claiborne. And I remember one of the, the researchers saying like, oh, you don't want to do that. And I was like, well, why? Oh, like archive is just like, it's such a mess. And like, it's so hard to find things. You're, you get lost in there. Well, she was right. She was right. And she was wrong. She was right because I was going to get lost in there. And the reason why is because there was so much amazing stuff. So the Times turns out had been writing about food since the 1850s, which I didn't know. I don't even know if the researchers realized that they wrote extensively about food, like, like almost daily in the, in the 1870s, 1880s. And there was incredible content. So there was all of a, all of a sudden this project that I thought was going to go back like 45 to 50 years was going to go back 150 years. And it was a little mind boggling because it was like also to find the content you had to, <laughs> let's just say like it was not Google. Amanda, don't tell me you were knee deep in like microfiche and microfilm. Microfilm. It was essentially a, it was a PDF version of microfilm. What, what was really fascinating about it was that actually in the 19th century, almost all of the food content came from readers. Wow. It was all user generated. Like the editors would say like, hey, we're looking for X, Y, and Z kinds of recipes. And then readers would send them in and then they would print them. They were written very much like tweets. They, they made a lot of assumptions that you knew how to cook. So instead of like you almost, they would almost never tell you like how to make a pastry. They would just say like, you know, use a short crust <laughs> and then, you know, right like meld a nugget of lard and do blah, blah, blah. And it wasn't, it wasn't all like, it was not all like kind of like lard and awful. It was really some amazingly modern seeming recipes. Like one of my favorites is actually a raspberry granita. Interesting. Which, you know, we is like an Italian ice from the, uh, and it was a 19th century recipe. I think it was in the 1880s. And it is, if I'm going to make a raspberry granita, that's the one I'm going to make because it's really densely flavored. And it has a step where you, after you, after you shave the ice, you also fold fresh raspberries into it and then freeze it again. And it's just like, it's so good. There's a lot of recipes like that. And so as a result, this book that I thought already was going to be a big project and take a couple of years to five years of like solid research and testing. And I hired someone to help me do that. Her name's Meryl Stubbs. And she ended up becoming my business partner in Food 52. But we like worked intensely together for these years. And I did this on the side. So like I would go to work you know, during the day and then two nights a week, Meryl would meet me at home at like six and we'd cook until like 10. 
So we tested 1400 recipes over the course of these years. Wow. That's what went into the first edition of this book was essentially I was trying to distill the kind of greatest hits across these decades. And right. there's so many amazing recipes in the New York Times archive that it's really hard to feel like I know I didn't capture every greatest hit, but I tried to do a selection so that you could really kind of appreciate the evolution of our our attitudes and interests in food over time, but also through really great recipes, whether they were 150 years old or 50 or, you know, like last year, that is the genesis of the book. As we were heading towards 2020, I was like, well, it would be so nice. It'd be so amazing to do a 10th anniversary edition because shortly after I published the book, the first edition, the New York times totally transformed its food coverage and went like all in on digital created the New York times cooking app. And really like leaned into home cooking in a way that they never had, probably really hadn't since the 19th century. And the Times has always like been, you know, covered lots of cuisines, but I felt like they've really actively pursued seeing the, the world of food in this much broader and open way and brought in a lot of new contributors. Well, Amanda, I can say for you, because I have no vested interest in the New York Times, although I am a car carrying holder and I subscribe to both the Times and cooking, but something that I, I stood up and I said, bravo, was when I got the app and I was like, oh, wow, you've actually decided we're going to cook some African cuisine. We're going to cook some Asian cuisine, which in the beginning, it wasn't, there was no real presence of the diaspora and not only feature that, yeah. but they went out, they went out of their way, I think, to find the voices yeah. that represented mm-hmm. that cuisine. And that for me is what made me say, okay, I'm going to subscribe again. Yeah. Because it felt a little, it felt distilled at first. And I think there, there has been this major transformation. Yeah. That to me was like something that outside of just doing an update, the re- the real reason to do this new edition was because there had been so much change at the times and like their whole way of seeing their, their food coverage had evolved in this, like I thought like really bountiful, interesting way. And so it just, it felt like a good time. That was really why I set out to to do a new edition. And of course, it like because they have done so much good coverage over the past decade, there was like hundreds of recipes to test. And like it was a big project. And I and the reason, Chef Plum, you you noted that book is rather uh thick. It's a big book. It's a very it's a large book. book. I know. I, I think it's like it's five plus pounds. Um, but <laughs> I did trim out recipes. I trimmed out about 80 recipes, I want to say, maybe a little less. And then but I added like 120. So like I didn't didn't exactly do one for one. I was supposed to do for one for one, but I couldn't help myself because there really was like all of this great material. Yeah. And I wanted, I like, I wanted it to really reflect like the, the shifts that the times had made. How do you decide, okay, I'm taking, you know, these 80 or so recipes out. Like, how do you make that differentiation? What makes you change your mind to go, okay, this has got to come out. Let's put something new in there. You know, I think when I was doing the first edition, because I was trying to create a book that was like, felt like really balanced in terms of, it wasn't just making sure that I was representing each historical period or like it was cuisines. It was like types of ingredients, like making sure there was enough salads or soups or, you know, it's organized as a more traditional cookbook in that way. Right. Um, so there were probably a few recipes in there that I felt like I wouldn't call <laughs> they're they all great recipes, but like that might, might have felt like more, um, superfluous than the others or, or less, like less necessary, like you, the book could live without them. So those were kind of easy ones. And there were a couple of recipes that like, there's this German recipe called Himmelreich. And it was basically like pork, 
and a bunch of dried fruit and you cooked it in a bag. It was just super weird. It was like very seventies and like weird. And it was like, <laughs> somebody wrote, wrote to me, like I wrote on, even when I was writing the first edition, I used Twitter a lot to like get feedback from people. Like, and with the first edition, I totally like did crowdsourcing. I asked people like New York Times readers for their favorite recipes. And that actually formed the backbone of the four modern recipes that I included and tested. Then more recent edition, I, you know, I said like, are there any recipes that, that you tried and didn't like? And somebody was like, that Himmelreich is terrible. And so- <laughs> I mean, hey, shout out to that person for actually trying that recipe. Are you kidding me? That's I know, crazy. I know. And I was like, I was like, yep, I never liked it either. It's out. <laughs> it's out. There were a couple of things where I let the like obsessions kind of take hold. For instance, for reasons that I can't fully explain, butternut squash soup has become, is like a New York Times obsession over decades. And so I, there are like four butternut squash soups in the, in the, I included in the book. Like I could have just included the one that I felt like was best, but I like the idea that like, for whatever reason, Times readers love butternut squash soup. <laughs> so I'm going to show different, like very different versions that are all really great on, in their own right. And chocolate chip cookies, of course, is one. And like the Times has been kind of like, tweaking different versions and like celebrating different versions of chocolate chip cookies and they all have merit and they're all like amazing recipes so i just like in a couple of areas like that you'll find like gazpacho is another one there i think I, there are like six gazpachos in the book which i know is like it sounds excessive it's great it's like choosing a favorite child you couldn't choose a favorite child you were like i love all seven of yes. these gazpacho recipes so they're i do yeah they are yeah. all <laughs> they're all going in <laughs> I, I was wondering if you could tell us about, because we're admitting this is, a, it's a very large cookbook. <laughs> we're all holding hands and saying it's very large and it's okay. It's okay. We're going to be okay with it. Yeah. Could you tell us, you know, for listeners, ways to use this cookbook or ways to not use this cookbook? <laughs> uh, well, I, in the first edition, I said, it's great for pressing terrines. It can use, be used as a doorstop, but, you know, don't tell me. <laughs> um, but I think that it doesn't, like, the, the photography in the book, just so anyone knows, like, if you're looking for a cookbook that has, like, a photo of every recipe, this is not your book. This is a book where you really, the recipe content itself is really what you've got to be there to appreciate. Mm -hmm. What I did with the new edition is that recipe types, some recipe types will have, like, highlighting around them, like a sort of a, a box around them. And I did that as to create gateways because it's such a dense book that I wanted people to be like, okay, if I'm in the cakes chapter, like which cakes do I start with? Start with those because those are, you know, other recipes that I just like think are absolutely wonderful and like special. You're not going to find any of any version elsewhere. That's, that's better. Or just that, you know, have become times classics. So I'll give you an example. Um, Teddy's apple cake. I don't know if any of you guys know Teddy's apple cake, but it's a recipe that's been around for decades. We've all had lots of decent apple cakes, but this one is just so great. It's like so perfectly balanced and it has a lot of fragrance from the spices. Like it's just like, it's like, so this perfect apple cake and anyone can make it. It's the kind of apple cake that's like super simple. You don't need a mixer. You just mix everything up in a bowl and pour it into a tube pan and you're done and everyone loves it. And you can eat it for breakfast and you can serve it for dessert at a dinner party. And, and it also travels well. It's like one of those, that's an example. Because you might see Teddy's apple cake, it might not leap out to you. So I wanted to make sure that you you knew those sort of like doorways to like enter the book from. We're spending the hour with Amanda Hesser. Her new book is a behemoth, the essential New York Times cookbook. And as the cover states, it's lovingly revised and exceedingly cookable. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. 
We're going to take a short break, but when we come back, some tips for home cooks and more recipes from the Times Archive that Amanda considers essential. It is frankly just like the best version of tomato sauce around. You're listening to Seasoned on Connecticut Public Radio. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Season Now Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Love. We are talking with food writer turned founder and CEO of the Food 52 Empire, Amanda Hesser, about the years-long process of writing The Essential New York Times Cookbook in 2010 and its revision in 2021. It's a big book, so we asked Amanda to give us her top picks for must-make recipes. Oh my goodness. There are a ton of like really funky, funny desserts. Like there's something called Huguenot tort, which if you've ever made like pavlova, I highly recommend trying this because it's in that family, but it's different enough. Actually, another one, sorry, is another meringue based one. It's called forget about it meringue tort. And it's called forget it, forget about it because you, you mix it up you put it in a tube pan, you put it in the oven and then you turn the oven off and leave it overnight. And then in the morning it's baked. It's perfect. And it's got this like kind of like toasty, toasted meringue crust. And then it's really like bouncy in the middle and you, you know, add some fruit and call it a day. And it's fantastic. I, well, in the new edition, there are a couple, I'm just going to name a couple of ones that sort of stand out to me. One is Zahav's hummus tahina. Like we all have hummus recipes we like. This one is just like so much better than everyone else's because it's the way that the chickpeas are treated. Like they, you soak them in, in water with baking soda and they cook them with a little baking soda. You get like a much, much smoother texture. And I don't know if it's like that plus lemon, but you get this really like fluffy hummus that is like intensely flavored and feels delicate. It doesn't feel like this like hefty, like dip. Interesting. I would recommend that one because I think this one is transformative. And so here's a recipe that I added to this new edition that like there are other like sort of mac and cheese or mac and cheese like recipes, but there's a Southern macaroni and cheese recipe that I included in this, in this new edition that it's like deep dish. It's super easy to make. It's just that quintessential perfect version of a Southern mac and cheese. And, you're, and it doesn't, it doesn't like mess around by like throwing in like peas or throwing in ham or bacon. Like, it's just like, it's just pure and it's simple. It doesn't mess around. No peas, no bacon. <laughs> doesn't mess around. So mac and cheese, it doesn't mess around. I love it. <laughs> I would be remiss if I did not ask you about the protein that'll make or break a chef, which is roasted chicken. I know the 40 <laughs> cloves, right? The James Beard oh, yeah. going down in the annals of culinary history, the 40 cloves roasted chicken, right? Yeah. That's got to be in so there. Good. Yeah, that's in there. I feel like that recipe has been around since the first one in 1850, <laughs> whatever. Yeah, I'll tell you the roast chicken, the recipe that I, in the new edition that I feel like is, I think it's a Melissa Clark recipe. It's um, green goddess roast chicken. And you basically make a green goddess dressing and like use that to marinate the chicken. It's so fantastic. The, you know, the acidity in the buttermilk uh, helps kind of like, it does something magical with the skin and it like all the flavors seep in and it's just, it's really super succulent and delicious. I want to talk about your cooking axioms in the book a little bit. I think it's really helpful for people to see this. 
whether you're a, a home cook that's just starting out or moving up. You talk about, I mean, some of the obvious, using fresh spices, good oil, great non-iodized salt. You know, as a chef, I live and die by kosher salt and mm-hmm. sea salt, you know, that I can pick up with my hand and feel. But just talk about that a little bit. Well, a, a couple of things I, that are leaping to mind are like not just the kind of salt, but just like not being afraid of salt. Like I do think that that's something yeah. I have um, have learned over time. And, you know, if you watch chefs work, like they use a lot more salt than uh, people might normally be comfortable with at home. And it just, and how important it is to kind of season throughout the time that you're cooking, not just, it's certainly not at the, just at the end, but that it's like seasoning is this constant kind of tweaking and that it, you shouldn't see it as like a one-time technique, you know, when you're making a recipe, but as something that you're constantly adjusting as you go and that you should be, and that that's okay. Cause like, even if a recipe calls for a specific amount of salt, for instance, you still might need to dial that up or dial it down. The other thing is like heat is not to be afraid of heat. Some people uh, are a little timid or they don't take the time to like really heat a pan before they add food to it. Oh my God. Preach. You know, like if you're talking about chicken, like that chicken thigh, if you want to really brown it and you don't want it to stick, like get your pan really well heated and, and use a heavy pan or cast iron and, and something that's, that's, that really holds its heat well. And so, you know, those are things that like, you just, it takes experience and, and, and time to kind of get as a cook. And I think that's, a, that's the thing I love most about cooking is that cooking is like, it's just super dynamic. You're never an expert. And you never will be an expert and that's okay. And that's sort of, that's like the beauty of it. And I, I always think back, like, I feel like my cooking changes every five years. Like I become a different cook. And some of that is influenced by just like life stage, right? Like, you know, I cook differently when I was single than when I had two young kids. And then, then I cook now, (laughs) right now I'm into big batch cooking because I have teenagers who just like food vanishes and sort of knowing that going in, I think there's a lot of intimidation that people feel like they have to know everything or they have to be an expert. And it's like, no, you're never going to be an expert. And that's the beauty of it. That's the fun of it, right? Like you're going to, you're, you're, you're delving into something where you can constantly learn. And that is so like, that's a great to me, like a great joy in life. Amanda, can you just tell us a little bit about the people behind the recipes I wonder if there are a couple of people who really inspired you or who you thought of in a, spe- a specific way when you were getting together all these recipes, you know, sort of the faces or the names behind them. Well, I think the beauty of the new edition is that there's a lot more voices. Like I would say like there were periods in the times where they had kind of a handful of primary recipe writers and that's sort of who you heard from, or you would hear from like the chefs that they wrote about. Right. And I think that now, um, and I think social media has been a huge boost to this. It's just that it's given a platform to a lot more creators. And I think the times has made a point of like bringing in more voices to its coverage and therefore the creators of the recipes are, you know, there's a much sort of like broader swath of people. Right. And um, also there are, they, they still do have like staff writers or people who are columnists. And like, so I'm thinking of like someone like Samin Nosrat, who is just a spectacularly talented person um, and, and a really great recipe writer. And so she's somebody who stands out in my head as somebody who's like a number of her recipes ended up in the new edition because they were recommended by readers Uh, They were recommended by her colleagues because I also went to, you know, all the regular times writers and said, like, what recipes are of your own are you most proud of? And who else is like, you know, what do you think are like the best recipes from the past decade? And so means her herb tadig, which is, you know, a rice dish where, you know, you actually intentionally create this crust in the bottom and then turn it out. Yeah. It's a, it's a similar challenge to Tartap Tan where you're like cooking this dish kind of upside down and hoping that it caramelizes just to the right amount so it'll come out of the pan and be great. And um, she also um, 
she has a really like broad scope of like culinary interest. And so she's brought a lot of like recipes from that are specific to particular cuisines, but also just that like kind of blend cuisines. And like, you know, so a lot of her work has, has ended up in the book. Like Francis Lamb is another columnist from the magazine who, you know, he's much more kind of his, his columns were really like these beautiful essays, but he's also a great recipe writer. And so there's like a stir fried egg dish that he grew up with that is in the, in the book. Also in the book, the Italian classic from the Nona of all Nonas, Marcella Hazan. And Amanda reveals the most popular recipe in the history of the New York Times. Like Marcella Hazan's tomato sauce is a perfect example of one that you'll find it in a lot of places on the internet, but it was published in the Times, you know, for good reason, which is that, you know, obviously Marcella Hazan has had an enormous influence on Italian cooking in our culture and, and sort of bringing, you know, to light dishes that maybe weren't, you know, super familiar to everyone. Um, but the beauty of the tomato sauce, which I think is like also um, kind of captures what I think some of the most popular recipes in the Times uh, managed to do is that it's it's this perfect, people think of tomato sauce as like Italian tomato sauce is something that's like has to simmer on the stove forever. It has a lot of different ingredients. There's a lot of chopping. And actually hers is that you take a can of tomatoes pour them into a saucepan, add a stick of butter, take a, a whole onion and just cut it in half and throw it in and add some salt and simmer it for like 40 minutes, you know? And it's like, it's something that takes three brain cells to do, but it creates this incredible sauce. It is frankly, just like the best version of tomato sauce around. So that's like, to me, I wanted to make sure that, that those kinds of recipes were captured here. And another one that is like, uh, is actually literally the most popular recipe in the New York Times of, of all time is the, is um, it's called plum tort. And it was a, it's a cake. Do you know it? I do. Okay. I and do. it's like five ingredients. They're all in your pantry. You mix them up with a spoon, scrape it into a, a cake pan, and then you take plums and you just have them. So you don't have to like, you don't have to peel them. You don't have to slice them. You just have them take the, the pits out and then drop them into the batter as it bakes it, they sink in like, so they look like these embedded jewels. And it's just one of those cakes that like, you can freeze it. It travels well. I know people who make 10 at a time. It's just like, it's so straightforward, but it creates something that's really memorable. And that like, kind of sticks with you. It's best made with those Italian plums that are only in season for a few weeks in the fall. It, you know, it's this kind of annual treat. And I, I think it, it really embodies like what has been so great about the Times coverage over the years is that they've really worked hard to find all these gems that are really like interesting, memorable, but also like very accessible to home cooks. Fantastic. Well, Amanda Hester, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. This was a real treat for us. Well, thank you. I really appreciate you taking time with me. Wait, what are you making for dinner tonight? <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> in fact, I was thinking, like, what am I going to have for lunch? Um, I got to figure that out next. I know a cookbook you could look into if you need <laughs> Okay, I'll check it out. <laughs> Thank you. That was Amanda Hesser. She's responsible for all the beautiful things we see on Food 52. And she's the author of likely the largest cookbook you own, The Essential New York Times Cookbook. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. Seasoned is produced by Robin Doyen-Aiken, Katie Tularski, and Emily Cherish. Our interns are Sarah Gasparato and Michaela Savitt. Thanks for listening, everybody. You can catch past episodes of Seasoned on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe and never miss our conversations with people making great food and drink in our state and beyond. See you next week. <laughs>